following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We will take a break from our regular series this morning. We've been in this series, uh, if, if you're part of our regular church community, and I know there are, there are others who, who come on Easter Sunday, but if you're here, um, if you've been here for a while, we've been doing this series on the Sermon on the Mount, the series that uh, looks through a sermon that Jesus preached in the book of Matthew. So we'll take a break from that because it is Easter today, and then we'll kick back into that next week. But I thought what we would do is still stay in the same book of the Bible this morning, just for a little bit of continuity. So we're going to be in the book of Matthew today. Uh, if you've got a Bible, open it up. If you've got it on your device, then open that up. And uh, you can, if you've got a Bible app, that's a, that's a great way. If you you can close down Instagram first, that's helpful. But if not, then it's okay. Just uh, get that uh, Bible there. If you don't have a Bible, all of that's fine. And the words will be on the screen for you this morning. Caleb Patterson is somewhere, I think, in the building, and is going to come and read this passage for us. We're in Matthew chapter twenty-eight. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Oh, go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee. There you will see him. Good job, Caleb. Thank you. Okay, well, I know on a day like this, there's uh, a lot of different people in a lot of different places uh, on your faith journeys. Uh, in the room here this morning, maybe watching online, maybe listening to the message afterwards. So I'm really conscious of that as we come to this passage and just different places we're at. I know some of you uh, may not be Christians at all, and you, you kind of come with a certain degree of skepticism maybe to this. Uh, that's fine. You might not even be sure why you're here this morning. Someone dragged you along. You don't know why you said yes. Now you're wondering why you came. You're looking forward to lunch, but you're here. So let's make the most of it. Um, others of you, you're somewhere else on the journey. You're, you're, you're interested. You're open. You're searching. You're, you're asking questions, and you've got this sense of curiosity, and there's something that's drawing you, and you want to know more. Uh, others of you are followers of Jesus, and some of you have been followers of Jesus for a long time, and you've, you've sat through a lot of Easter Sunday sermons, and you know the story well. And there's that sense of what's new. You know, we've heard the story before. What's new at Easter time? It's not like the story's really changed in 2,000 years. So uh, there's a sense maybe of like, well, I've heard this all before. So we come at this from all these different places. And what that means is that when you come to this passage, we're all bringing different questions to this. I think we have certain questions of this kind of story. It's a pretty dramatic story. Uh, some of you may be asking, is it true? Like this account that you've just heard, is this for real? Do we take this seriously? Is this a real account of something that actually happened, someone rising from the dead? Uh, others of you, though, have different questions, and you're asking, what's the significance of this? What's, wh wh what does it mean? 
Uh, what's the deeper meaning then, if this is real, behind the resurrection of Jesus? And then some of you are feeling, well, I do believe this, but what difference does it make in my life? Yeah, I know it's true. I think it's true. But how's my life going to be any different tomorrow if Jesus is raised from the dead or not? What practical difference does this make to my everyday life? Some of you are bringing that kind of question. And I think it's good to remember at the outset with this passage, these are all good questions. There's nothing wrong with any of those questions. That reflects who we are. And Matthew, the author of this passage, when he was writing this, he was writing it to people who had all the same questions. So don't think this is just you and me in the 21st century. People in the first century had all those questions as well. In fact, just a little bit later in the same passage, you read that even among Jesus' disciples, some of them believed and some of them doubted, even after Jesus appeared to them. Some of them believed it and some of them weren't sure. And so they, there was the whole spectrum then, just as there is the whole spectrum now. So the story is for everybody, and all of our questions are welcome, and it doesn't matter where you are, there is something in this story for you. And the way that Matthew tells this account, all of these questions are raised and one way or another, all of these questions are answered. And I think the best thing we can do this morning, and this is what I'm planning to do, is just walk through the story with you. And I'll make some observations and say some things along the way, but I think it's good for us just to hear the story. And you will find that as we go through, the major questions that we have come up in the text. And this passage answers our questions. Is this true? And what's the significance of this? And what difference does it make in my life? All three of those questions make an appearance in this text. So let's dive in and have a closer look here. Matthew 28, the very first verse of the chapter says this. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now just pause there for a minute. There's something really significant in this first verse that we can easily miss, which is that the first people to visit the tomb on Easter Sunday and the first people to see Jesus resurrected were women. And here in the 21st century, that may, that may not mean much to us. It's like, well, you know, big deal. So it was Mary and some other Mary, who cares? But in the first century, this was really, really significant because in the first century, it was a heavily patriarchal society. Women didn't really have any rights. They didn't have any social standing. They didn't have status within society. They were largely seen as the property of their husbands. Uh, they, they really had no rank no status. There were certainly women that could rise to positions of power, but as, as a general rule, women were not highly regarded. Now, I'm, that, we would find that highly offensive today. I'm not endorsing that. I'm just telling you that was the historical reality of life in the first century. That's just how it was. It was a male-dominated, male-driven society. So it's quite extraordinary that at the beginning of this story about the resurrection, Matthew makes a point of telling us that the first people to arrive at the tomb and then the first, person, first people to see Jesus were women. And you have to ask, well, why? Why would the author of this passage write that the first witnesses were women? When even if you were in a court of law in the first century, the testimony of a woman would not even be allowed or it would not even be considered valid testimony. The testimony of a woman was considered worthless. And yet Matthew has the testimony of women front and center. Why would he do this? And the only reasonable answer, I think, is because that's what happened. Because it's true. Because this is how it unfolded. I mean, it speaks to the credibility of the story that you have these two women going to the tomb that day. I mean, think, if you were, if you were making this up, like let's say Matthew was making this account up, 
and it was just a total fabrication. If you were making up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, if you wanted to get traction, if you wanted people to listen to that, if you wanted people to find that in any way credible, you would never have women being the first people to arrive at the tomb. You would make sure it was men because that, in that social context, in that culture, that's how it's going to catch on. People might then give it serious attention, but not with these women. And so the very fact that Matthew includes these women here tells us this is not something that is being fabricated because there is no way this is how you would fabricate that story. It speaks to the reliability of what's going on. That Matthew's just simply recording what really happened. This is included because it's real, because it's true. And Matthew just tells it like it is. So the very presence of these women and the fact that Matthew mentions them and gives us their names speaks to the historical reliability of this as an account of something that actually happened that first Easter Sunday. So let's go on in the story then. These two women, Mary and Mary, they arrive at the tomb. And then in verse 2, we read, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down. From heaven. Interesting detail here, just in passing. The, this angel of the Lord, this, this heavenly figure that these women encounter, it's the second time in the book of Matthew that this angel of the Lord has appeared. And guess where the other time was? The very first chapter, yeah, when Jesus was born. So you have this, these two appearances at the beginning of Matthew's gospel and at the end of Matthew's gospel. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph when Jesus was, uh, was conceived to tell him this baby is from the Holy Spirit. And you should take Mary as your wife. That was the angel of the Lord there. And now when Jesus is raised from the dead, the angel of the Lord appears again. So you have this beautiful symmetry there. At the miracle of Jesus' birth or conception, the angel of the Lord appears to announce this amazing miracle. And then an even greater miracle now on Easter Sunday, the angel of the Lord is announcing to these women, this Jesus is raised to new life. The angel's there for the first beginning and he's here for the second Beginning, beautiful book ending to the Gospel of Matthew. So the angel of the Lord is there. He rolls away the stone and sits on it. There's a violent earthquake. And these guards who were there, there was a Roman legion that was posted at the tomb to guard the tomb, to protect it from anyone coming in, trying to steal the body. Matthew tells us these guards shake. They become like dead men. It's an interesting little irony there. These guards have become like dead men. And where's the dead man? He's not there. It's like, you know, let, let the reader understand kind of thing. You know, it's like this reversal of roles. The guards are like corpses and the corpse is risen. So the guards are, are, are terrified. They're, they're paralyzed with fear. And then the angel speaks to the woman in verse 5. And this is really the, the climactic part of the story. And he says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Those seven words, he is not here, he has risen. That's the heart of the story, isn't it? That's the heart of our faith, really, as Christians. Those seven words, that's, that's the, it's the essence of Easter, and it is the essence of the Christian faith. At the very heart of the entire Christian worldview is this truth, this claim, that Jesus was physically, bodily dead in that tomb for about 36 hours, and then he came back to life. It wasn't just the resuscitation of someone who was nearly dead. 
It wasn't just this kind of metaphorical sense of like, well, Jesus just rose in our hearts. It's just like this feeling of love. You can't get around it that way. This is the story. It's in all four of the gospel accounts. Jesus was dead. He was physically dead in every way. He was in the tomb. He was buried. And then on the third day, he came to life again. This is a big claim. It is an audacious claim, but it is the claim at the heart of the Christian faith. And this is where we are this morning. We've got to deal with this claim. Every one of us have got to decide, what are we going to do with this? I know it runs against all the laws of human biology. Dead people don't come back to life. And so we have to decide, is this a miraculous intervention of God in history where he has raised a man from the dead, or is this something else? Is this just something to ignore and get on with our lives? This is at the heart of the Christian faith, and without it, nothing else makes sense. Nothing else in the Christian faith makes sense. You cannot say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection, but I'll take everything else. It doesn't work like that. Some people want it to work like that. And they say, well, I don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead, but I think he was still a good moral teacher. I think he was still a good man. And didn't he say good things like love your neighbor, you know, and be kind to one another. Actually, that was Jacinda Ardern who said that, but (laughs) Jesus said similar things. Be kind to each other. You know, he said all these nice things. And so can't we just have the nice things? Can't we just have the good sayings and maybe a couple of parables? And he taught us how to live, but we don't really want the resurrection. You can't go there. You can't do it because Jesus didn't do it. Jesus didn't just say those nice things. Jesus himself staked his own own reputation on rising from the dead. Jesus staked his divinity on rising from the dead. Jesus said, you destroy this temple. He's talking about his body. He said, you destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it again. Now he's talking about himself. If he wasn't risen from the dead, all that is rubbish. And it makes a mockery of everything else that he said because he put all his eggs in that basket knowing that one way or another, he would be justified and would be raised from the dead. The other authors of books in the Bible also knew this, and they wrote exactly the same way. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So Paul doesn't say, well, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, let's just, you know, there's lots of other good things to believe. Let's just cobble it together out of all the other stuff that we've got, And that's fine. We don't need the resurrection. No, Paul says, if if that one historical fact is not true, it's game over. It's we might as well pack up and go home. We've got nothing more to say. In fact, he says, we are to be pitied among all men if this is not true. Because we have put everything on this, on the historical fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. So we can't get around this with a nice little easy argument that, well, we'll take some of what Jesus said, but we don't want the resurrection. Jesus doesn't allow us that option. Paul doesn't allow us that option. It goes together. Either you believe the whole thing or you don't. So if the resurrection's not true, none of the Christian worldview makes sense. But if the resurrection is true, everything changes. If this one fact is true, If you can allow the possibility that God raised Jesus from the dead on Easter Sunday, suddenly everything changes. This is not just like one act that doesn't mean anything. This everything looks different. If you put that piece in place, all of the other pieces make sense. Then you can look back over Jesus' life and see if he truly has been raised from the dead, then he is exactly who he says that he was, the son of God then his claim as to who he was makes sense. 
that he is the Messiah and he is the king and his prophecies of what he would accomplish through his life and his death and his resurrection all make sense because now we've validated that through the historical reliability of the resurrection. Most importantly, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, you can then see that Jesus' death makes sense because the way you think about Jesus' death depends on the resurrection. I mean, just consider... On that Friday when Jesus died, when Jesus was hung up like a criminal on that cross, nobody looked at that event and said, hallelujah, Jesus has died for my sins on the cross, and now I can be forgiven. Nobody picked up a guitar on Good Friday and started singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. That nothing about the situation of Good Friday suggested that. Nothing about what was going on on the cross suggested that. And that is why Jesus' followers, at least the ones that were left on Friday, weren't many left, but the ones that were left went home utterly dejected, utterly discouraged, and thinking, well, we thought he was the one, but I guess we were wrong. We thought we'd hoped maybe he was the one. Maybe he was the Messiah. Maybe he was the king. But we must have been wrong because there's no way that a Messiah, that a king would end up on a Roman cross. And so on the Friday and on the Saturday, nobody was thinking that Jesus was the king and was the savior of the world. It wasn't until you get to Easter Sunday. And then when Jesus has been raised from the dead and he appears to his followers, then they can look back at the death of Jesus and they realize this isn't what we thought it was. Something was happening that we never saw. But now that we see Jesus is raised from the dead, now that we see he's been resurrected, we can see now that his death meant something other than what we thought it did. Now we can see that this man, when he died, this wasn't just the death of a man. It wasn't just the death of a criminal. This was a sacrifice. This was a sacrifice of the one for the many to pay for sin, to take our wrongdoing, to take our failure upon himself. This wasn't just a death. This was a substitution. This was a man who was giving his life as God for all the wrongdoing of all humanity. They could look back then in view of the resurrection and see this, that death of Jesus that was exactly what Jesus said it was when he said the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how Jesus himself put it. And that only made sense in view of the resurrection. Then they could look back and say, yes, that's what it was. It was a ransom where Jesus paid this price that every one of us owed to God. He paid it. He took it upon himself so that we could be free. Now, all of that only makes sense in view of the resurrection of Jesus. So once that piece is in place, the rest of it then all falls into place. It's like the resurrection is a lens through which you can look back at the rest of Jesus' life and see that it makes sense. Without the resurrection, his death is meaningless. His life is meaningless. His claims are meaningless. With the resurrection, it all makes sense and everything is true. Everything comes alive, so to speak. That's why the resurrection is the absolute essence of the Christian faith. And it's the peace that puts everything else in its place. So the resurrection is at the heart of the Christian faith. It makes sense of everything else. And then I want to just look at this practical question of what difference then does this make 
in our lives today. If we are prepared to accept the truth of the resurrection as an historical event, if we can see the meaning of the resurrection as the key to unlocking everything that Jesus said and did, then what practical difference does it make for us? I want to come to the end of this story and just look at this little interaction that happens towards the end of the passage. Almost, it's, almost seems like a, an add-on to the story, but there's something here which I think is just so good. Uh, in verse 8, the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. It's almost an interruption to the story. You know, Jesus, the angel had said, go up to Galilee and you'll meet him. That's where he's going to meet you. But then Jesus just, it's like Jesus can't help himself. And he just shows up on the way. So I just want to see these people. He just shows up while they're coming away from the tomb. He shows up. Jesus met them. And then in verse 9, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. He said. Uh, that word greetings, and when you hear it in English, it sounds quite formal. Greetings. You know, we wouldn't usually say that to each other, would we? Greetings. Uh, we'd, we'd be more colloquial in the way we speak. Uh, the Greek word that Jesus uses there is the word kairiti, and it's the most casual greeting that you could have. It's the most informal, relaxed greeting that you could use. So it would be the equivalent today of us just saying, hey, that's what he said. It's just the equivalent of Jesus saying, morning, or kia ora. This is... Uh, I mean, it's just a lovely flourish, isn't it, in the text, where the, the first, here's Jesus risen from the dead, the resurrected Jesus, and the first word out of his mouth is, hey, what's up? <laughs> it's just so casual. There's something beautiful about it. it you know, the first word is not, behold, it is I. <laughs> it's morning. There's something really relaxed about that. I, th I mean, I don't want to read too much into it, but it says something, doesn't it? about who Jesus is, doesn't it? Um, about who he is as a friend and how he is with us as a friend and how he invites us to respond to him as a friend today, I think. I remember when uh, I was, I think in primary school, and there was one school holidays where I went down to stay with my cousins in Bulls. Anyone been to Bulls? It's a great little town. Everything's a play on the word Bulls. And that's not the point of the story. I went down there and uh, stayed there for a week with my cousins. Mum put me on a plane to go down there. Um, my auntie picked me up at Palmerston North, and my uncle worked for Ohakia Air Force Base. So here I was for a week with my, with my cousins there. And I don't remember a whole lot of what we did that week, but I do remember there were a few times when I went for a little walk down the street by myself. And I, I'm not sure why. I was a pretty solitary creature, apparently. And I just went off for a little wander by myself a few times during the week. And there was a little playground down the road. And I, I, I played around on this playground, and I remember vividly trying to pray. That was my first memory I have of trying to pray, trying to connect with God. And all I had to pray with was the first couple of lines of the Lord's Prayer. And it was the old version too. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I didn't even know what those words meant, but that's all I had. And so that's what I used. And I prayed those two lines, and then I stopped. And I remember that sense of frustration of like, I want to pray. I want to speak to God, but I don't know how. Like that's all, those are the only words I really had to use. And I remember that kind of longing of wanting to connect with God, but not really knowing and not really having the tools to, to do that. And I wish I'd known the story back then. And I wish I'd known who Jesus was really 
back then and how he relates to me, really. Because it took me years before I understood that. And I think there's many people, even Christians, who go right through their adult life and they're still like that. And they're still in that space of wanting to connect with God but can't really do it. And they still, maybe it's you, feel that frustration of, I want to reach out to God but I don't know how. And I want to sense his presence but I don't. And I want to pray, but I don't have the words. And you just live in this sense of frustration of like, I kind of have this longing to connect with God, but I just can't connect with him. And I don't sense anything of his presence. There was some research that was done a few years ago, several years ago now. Uh, It was a big survey of American teenagers about their views of God, how they perceive God. And the researchers did this massive survey. They compiled all the results together. They came up with three themes that summarized the way these teenagers saw God. One of the dominant themes that came through in that research is that God is distant. That's fundamentally what people believed about God, is that he is distant. He might be out there somewhere, but he's not near me. He might exist. I think sometimes the problem is not so much the existence of God. It's the proximity of God. It's like, yeah, he might be on the throne of the universe, but he doesn't care about my life. He might be there, but he's not here. And it's such a tragedy because it's so opposite to who God really is. It's so different to who God has shown us that he is. And it's so different to who Jesus is. And the way that he shows up after his resurrection cuts through all of that. This is the whole point of the resurrection, that God is not distant anymore. That God is not just out there somewhere anymore, but he has drawn near. This is what Jesus has accomplished through his death and his resurrection to remove everything that separates you from God. Everything that kept you distant and God distant so that God could draw near to you. And when he draws near to you, he doesn't just draw near in this kind of religious way. It's not just like the Jesus of stained glass windows and and wrote prayers and this kind of formal religious kind of thing. This is Jesus who draws near to you now and just shows up in your life and says, hey, I'm here. And the most casual, like he shows up as a friend. This is who Jesus is to you today. This is the difference the resurrection makes is that now Jesus is present with you. No, he's not present in exactly the same way because he's not physically here, but he's present by his spirit. And he is right there beside you saying to you today, hey, just as he said to these women, it's not big, dramatic writing in the sky. Behold, it is I. It's Jesus there quietly beside you right now saying, hey, I'm here. I'm here. I've always been here. I'm always right beside you. Yeah, you might not feel his presence. You might not have an emotional sense of his presence. That's okay. A lot of the time, I don't have an emotional sense of God's presence. Most of the time, I don't have an emotional deep sense of God's presence, but that's okay. My awareness of his presence does not change the reality of his presence. Your perception of his presence right now does not change the reality of his presence. He's with you whether or not you feel it. He's with you whether or not your emotions tell you that he's with you. He's with you whether or not you sense it. Sometimes I can't sense the prayer. It's okay. It doesn't matter. He is with you. You know this because Jesus is raised from the dead, not because your feelings do or do not agree with you. It's the rock solid reality of Jesus' resurrection that tells you right now he's alive and he's with you as a friend and he's there. Even when you are in the worst possible space, and you feel totally abandoned by God, and you feel like you're in the darkness, and you think God is a billion miles away, 
even in those moments, Jesus is still right there. He's still right beside you. He's sitting there with you in the darkness. He's with you there in the toughness of what you're going through. And you can't sense a thing, but he's right there and he's saying to you, I love you and I'm holding you. And you can't feel it right now, but you'll see it one day and you'll see it more clearly in the future than you do right now, but I'm right here. And even those times when you're running away from him, and that's some of you this morning as well, even those times you're ignoring him and you're shutting him out and you don't want anything to do with him and you're just blissfully getting on with your own life and just conveniently ignoring the little voice in your head. Even in those times, you know where Jesus is. He's right beside you. He hasn't gone anywhere. And he's showing up to you today just as he showed up to those women. And he's saying, hey, I'm here. It's nothing dramatic, but his presence is right there with you. Sometimes I think we make God's presence too big a deal. And sometimes we make it too small a deal. It's an incredible thing that God is present with you right now. But sometimes we almost make it this thing where we've got to be in the right space to be able to say something. Or we've got to be able to get ourselves together in order to really connect with who God is. Or I've got to use the right words. Or it's got to be this big experience. Or I've got to go down to an Easter camp. No, you don't. The presence of Jesus is here with you today. As he will be with you in your bedroom when you go to sleep tonight. And he is right beside you. And he's just relating to you as a friend right now and saying, hey. He's saying, morning. And his invitation to you today is that you would turn towards him, open your heart to him, and say, hey. And just relate to him as a friend. No dramatic words, no big rope prayers, doesn't need to be a big religious thing. That you would just open your heart and would just say, hey. I acknowledge, Jesus, that you're here. I know you're here. I don't really sense it right now. I don't really understand it. I don't even know if this is true, but I just want to start a conversation and I just want to say hey and just see where this goes so in a sense we're all a bit like these women who came to the tomb that morning this is kind of what Easter Sunday is it's like we're reliving it and we come to the tomb just like those women came to the tomb 2,000 years later there's a similarity we all come and we're confronted with the same words that they heard that morning the angel saying to them And you hear it today in the account from Matthew. He's not here. He is risen. And just like those women, every one of us has got to decide what we do with those words. And doing nothing is a decision. Every one of us are confronted with that reality. What are we going to do with that? You can squeeze it out. You can forget about it. You can go on with your day. Or you can lean into that. And you can say, yeah, there's something here. There is something here. There is life here. There is something here that's deeper than I've ever known. There is purpose here. There is meaning here. There is a love here. There is a river of mercy here that I need to be close to. And the invitation for you today simply is not my invitation. It's the invitation of Jesus himself. And he's been inviting this for thousands of years is that you would turn your heart to him today. And for those of you that maybe have never had that living relationship with God, or maybe it's been a long, long time, and it's for you this vestige of your past, and it was like back in Sunday school or something, but it's not you today, and it's not where you are today. I just encourage you and invite you to begin that conversation with Jesus. And some of you are right there, and you're ready, and your heart is sensing that, yeah, this is the day. This is the step for me to take, is to open your heart today. Bring all of who you are. You don't need to hide anything. You can't hide anything. He sees it all anyway. Bring all of who you are. And simply say, God, I want to know you. And I want to place my life into your hands. I want to find the meaning and the purpose that I was created to have. That is the eternal life 
that Jesus offers to you. It is free, it is available, and it cost him everything. It cost him the cross, and it cost him the incredible dramatic event of rising from the dead, all of it for you, so that today you could go through your own Easter experience, and you could have that sense of dying to the old and rising to something new. That is the offer, and that's the eternal life that is available to you today. I want to just invite you now, if, if you have a sense that there's something that you want to say to God, and maybe it is just as simple as just saying, hey, you, I don't, you don't know what else to say, that's okay. Maybe there's that stronger sense from you that I, you really want to step into this. There's a sense of, I want to step into this relationship with God. I want to know this Jesus. I want this to become personal for me. Maybe it's never been personal. It's just been religious. And today's the day to make it personal. I want to pray. And you don't have to use my words. You use your own words. But maybe my words can trigger something for you. And you just put into your own words and the silence of your own heart what you want to say to God. But let me just lift up a prayer that might express something and just invite you in a minute or two of quietness to join your own prayers to what I say. And let's just come to God together. Jesus, I come to you now just as those women came to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday. And I come to you owning up to everything that I am, knowing that I can't hide anything from you, Jesus. You see my heart, you see everything that's wrong. You see everything that's not as it should be. You see all of my sin. But I thank you, Jesus, that you have taken that upon yourself so that I don't have to. That you've carried all of my failure, all of my sin, all of my selfishness. You've carried that. You have borne that in your body so that I don't have to carry it anymore. That I don't have to carry this guilt and this, this shame anymore. And so I just lift all that to you, Jesus, now. And in its place, I receive your forgiveness, your mercy, your love, and your healing power into my life. And I want to ask today, Jesus, that you would make me your child. You've made me. You've created me. I want to ask now, Jesus, that you would recreate me. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Draw me into your family today. And give me this precious gift of knowing you. I want to know you, Jesus. Not in a way of religion, but as you know me and the way that you relate to me. And, and just like that word of saying hi that you said to those women. Jesus, let it capture the way that... I relate to you just as a friend, just as a companion. So Jesus, I pray today would be the first step on that journey of knowing you and learning to love you and grow in this relationship that you have given me. And help me to keep talking to you just as I am now, that it wouldn't just be a thing for today, but would become the pattern of my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, 
or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.